I Am The Law is brought to you by Blueprint LSAT Test Prep, which reports an average score increase of 15 points. With the first AI-powered QBank, fun videos, personalized study plans, and engaging 98th percentile instructors, Blueprint has helped thousands of students crush their LSAT goals. Learn more at BlueprintLSAT.com. From Law Hub, this is I Am The Law, a podcast where we talk with lawyers about their jobs to shed light on how they fit into the larger legal ecosystem. In this episode, Debbie Merritt interviews an immigration lawyer who discusses the pressure that comes along with the high stakes in this field. Support comes from Seton Hall University School of Law in Newark, New Jersey where you can enroll full-time or in the weekend JD program. In the heart of New Jersey, with proximity to New York City, Seton Hall is dedicated to your outcomes, evidenced by high employment and bar passage rates. Its one-student-at-a-time approach supports you throughout your time in law school. Their flexible, hybrid, weekend JD program allows working professionals to balance work, family, and law school. Learn more at law.shu.edu. Support also comes from the University of Idaho College of Law, and its two locations. The Moscow location has all the resources of the university's main campus, neighboring a picturesque, charming college town. The Boise location is in the heart of downtown, just blocks from the seat of government. Either Idaho Law location provides an abundance of outdoor opportunities. As the only law school in the state, Idaho Law provides near-exclusive access to the courts, the legislature, and the rapidly developing business and nonprofit community. Our guest today is Manuel Escobar. He's an immigration attorney at the law office of Gerald M. Gonzalez, a small firm in San Antonio, Texas, that deals primarily in immigration, family, and criminal law. Manuel graduated in 2012 from St. Mary's School of Law in San Antonio. Prior to law school, he was a teacher, as well as a multimedia designer for a large firm. After law school, Manuel worked at a consumer law firm, workman's compensation law firm, a specialty immigration nonprofit, and now at an immigration law firm. Manuel, your goal was immigration. Why? I always had kind of an affinity towards immigration law because I'm Latino. I speak Spanish. I figured it was a a niche for me. Tell us then about the firm where you work now. Well, at Gerald Gonzalez's, it's, it's a pretty big firm. We have about six or seven attorneys, maybe eight. We have a, a fleet of assistants, and we do everything under the sun regarding immigration. And that's a very loaded statement. <laughs> so, I mean, we do petitions, family petitions, and we do deportation defense. Now we're moving into investor visas. So that pretty much covers all areas of immigration. And that was what you wanted with this firm, being able to focus on the full whole field. Absolutely. It's it's one of those uh, scary things. Uh, it's careful what you wish for <laughs> because it's it's very intense. How has the firm helped you learn all of these areas? Did you start in one area, then move to another, or are you working in all of them at the same time? I was hired on as removal defense, which basically is defending clients that are facing deportation. But because this is such a high volume law firm, we have just clients flooding, just coming in every day. And so we all do intakes. All the attorneys do intakes on a daily basis. So we're required to learn 
the family end of immigration, as well as deferred action, which is the new form of relief for people who arrived to the U.S. when they were minors, and then, of course, deportation. So I've, as a deportation attorney, I've gotten a taste of everything. When you say required to learn, how did you go about learning that? Is that book learning or watching videos, watching other lawyers? I received a good two-week training. They, they were easing me in by allowing me a few weeks of just straight research and reading before they started trickling cases my way. That was really good, but you can only read these books for so long before your eyes start crossing. Once you're faced with these issues is when you can actually put your research and your kind of legal maneuvering to work. That makes sense. Do you have a chance as you work to talk to other attorneys when you don't understand something? Absolutely. That was one of the reasons I went to this firm, um, or I chose this firm, because the, the workers' comp firm I was at had a great, great open-door policy. I, I could talk to the head, the owner of the firm. She was always available to answer any questions. She would sit you down and really talk it through. And then some of the more seasoned attorneys, they were always very amenable to, to helping me in, in whatever I needed, answering questions or pointing me in the right direction. And that's been the case with every job I've had. And I feel fortunate. I've heard that it's not always the case. I'm fascinated by this, in fact, because you've described your current firm as a high volume practice, which many people consider inconsistent with training new lawyers. But it sounds like just the opposite was true. Well, they throw you to the wolves. When, when you have a client sitting in front of you, you have to, you have to really just think quick on your feet. There's an issue that you can research right then and there that's not too difficult. Um, you can do it. Otherwise, I just ask them to hold, hold on a second and I'll go and talk to other attorneys about issues that uh, we're facing with that particular client. And I'm, I feel lucky that I'm getting paid to learn. Now, will the pay be enough to offset the financial investment in law school? Eventually, uh, but that's, that's the idea. Uh, initially, no, absolutely not. I think that the market, it makes sense to me. Why would you pay someone a huge salary when they don't know up and down? You're going to have these trainees that are making mistakes. They're, they're nervous. They're, they're just doggy paddle, essentially. What I've been seeing is that a lot of small to mid-sized firms know this and they'll hire people right out of right out of law school at low wages and then those people will eventually progress and move on and and hopefully go into higher paying jobs i also think it depends on the area of the law that you choose to to go into i know that with family law criminal law and immigration law it's a lot of upfront pay it's a lot of monthly fees as opposed to maybe civil litigation or personal injury where there's big um, big money at the end of the tunnel. Or nothing. Or, or nothing. It's feast or famine. Exactly. So depends on what kind of personality you have and whether you're a gambler or not. I agree that many firms are now hiring people at low wages to try them out for a few years. That does seem to be a new pattern. There also are some firms that are taking an entrepreneurial approach where the new lawyers might be paid a base amount, but then get a cut of what they earn through client work. Were either of your firms structured that way? In this, at this firm, it's higher pay, but um, some of the benefits aren't there. So, so the high pay almost kind of e evens out to what I was making before. 
let's walk through a typical day. What sorts of work would you do? Talk to clients, do research, appear in court? It varies, but typically for the morning time for me is when I can actually get work done. Um, so I'll go in and I have a big stack of cases. I'll start sifting through the ones that have deadlines pending or hearings coming up and try to kind of gain a sense of what it is that needs to be done, what we have as far as evidence is concerned, what we what we still need to, to get our hands on. So I'll just start creating an inventory of what we need, and then I'll I'll mobilize my assistants to get working on it. In our firm in particular, we do consults Monday through Thursday from 2 to 4.30. So after lunch, it's you just do intakes. Do you talk to the potential clients on your own or is it a team intake? Oh, no, it's it's individual. So we, we have them come in, they sit in a waiting room, then we call them in. We have a list of questions that we ask that are pertinent to identifying any form of relief. And it gets, it gets very complex and convoluted. Mm. What kind of questions do you ask potential clients? I first ask the client what it is that they're coming in for. What is it that they want? What is it that they're trying to accomplish? Or what sort of uh, situation has kind of befallen them? And so once I get an idea of what they're looking for, then I ask a series of questions to try to hone in on potential forms of relief and also to see if they even qualify for any relief. Can you describe how the conversation might flow? Let's say, for instance, if someone comes in to petition for their husband, what I do first is find out whether the the person that's in the office is either U.S. citizen or legal permanent resident. If they have no legal status in the U.S., they can't petition. So what would you ask her? I try to get as much information about their husband as possible. We try to find out when they first entered the United States, whether they came in legally, whether they came in illegally. And then it's important to find out if they've left the country since entering the U.S. So during intake, do you have to make the decision whether or not this is somebody who you can help or their case is just not plausible? Yes, absolutely. So what we do is we try to gather as much information as we can. And throughout that process, we'll identify whether they qualify, whether they don't. We kind of go through the gamut of every type of relief available. And some some qualify for certain relief, others qualify for nothing. It really it depends. It depends on the facts that they present us. A lot of times, what a client tells you isn't necessarily the truth. <laughs> I supervise a criminal defense clinic. I know that phenomenon well. Support comes from Vermont Law and Graduate School. Vermont Law and Graduate School empowers students to dream big. It welcomes and shares passions for social justice, the environment, criminal justice reform, and so much more. At BLGS, realism and idealism collide. Together, students and faculty positively transform the world around them. From an accelerated two-year JD to an online hybrid JD, BLGS offers innovative programs where you can learn at your own pace. To learn more, please visit vermontlaw.edu. Support also comes from Albany Law School. Albany Law School is committed to increasing access to the legal profession. Albany Law's online FlexJD delivers all the benefits you'd expect from an institution that's been educating future lawyers and leaders since 1851. With one in-person session per year, you'll complete most of your work online, 
giving you the flexibility you need to earn your law degree when and where it works for you. To find out how you can begin your journey to earning a JD, visit albanylaw.edu today. Support also comes from Baylor Law School, the smallest and oldest law school in Texas. Baylor Law has three entering classes, 15 tracks of study, strong bar passage and employment rates, robust scholarship offerings, numerous clinics and joint degree programs, and a focus on preparing excellent and ethical lawyers. Visit the Baylor Law website to learn more and to apply for free to the spring, summer, and or fall entering classes. What do you do once you determine that you will accept the client? Once we make our determination right then and there, we'll sign a case or we'll sign an investigation and we'll, we'll move from there. What about ability to pay? Do you assess that during the intake? Yes, we do. Our firm does a flat rate system. So we have a pricing for every for various forms of relief. Let's say for a deportation defense, it's a certain amount. And what we do is we'll ask them for a down payment and then we put them on a monthly payment plan. Is there any type of sliding scale depending on ability to pay? We assess that, but it really it's always a red flag if, if you have to if you have to bring your down payment down too much. Because if you're battling for the down payment in the intake, you're probably going to be battling for the rest of it throughout the case. And these are fairly discrete services that you're already charging a flat fee for. Yes, it, it really depends on what it is. We have two types of clients. We have those that come to us because they want to be there. The ones that are petitioning for family members, the ones that are seeking the deferred action form of relief. And then we have clients whose backs are against the wall. Right. And uh, they're forced to be there for us. It must be difficult when you have to tell a client like that that there's no relief possible. It is. It's, it's rough. It's it's tough. And, and also uh, the situation arises where you have to tell some of the happy clients that they don't qualify for anything. People People break down and cry. There's a lot at stake with immigration. It's something that I never really realized uh, before I actually got into it. So what are the things that you like most about the practice? I like the clients. So far I do. I like working with Latino clients. Um, I mean, I'm fluent in Spanish and they tend to really gravitate towards that. Also, I'm a little older than a lot of new attorneys. So, I think that that tends they tend to respect that initially, even in situations if I don't know what I'm talking about. I think maybe my my delivery makes them feel at ease. One thing I've learned is is how to say no and how to deliver bad news without really flinching. Um, and I think that a lot of clients really respect that to be told straight that either it's a yay or nay. That's very important for attorneys, I think. I agree. I agree. It's something that I used to dread. Uh, before I actually started doing it. But after a while, it's really, it's it's in their best interest to know. And and I always tell them that they're free to get a, a second opinion if they don't like what they've heard. One of the things my defense students have learned is that many criminal defendants simply appreciate the fact that another person will listen to them and sympathizes with their position. Absolutely. Uh, we don't judge. What I'm learning is that the job isn't only going to court and fighting a case. You're, you're a counselor to them. So, so if I get a client who had a great shot, their case was clean, and then they go out and get a DWI. Oh. <laughs> so that's when you can actually kind of admonish them and 
and uh, they're always they're always pretty open to hearing it so far. Let's talk more about removal defense. As I understand it, if an immigrant obtains U.S. citizenship, then he or she cannot be deported, but a legal permanent resident can be. Can you give three examples of relief available if facing deportation? If you're a legal permanent resident and some for some reason you ended up in deportation, there are several forms of relief for you if you qualify. We have one called a 42A cancellation of removal. There's readjustment and there are several waivers that can waive a variety of crimes. What that process entails is several preliminary hearings where you plead and you identify your relief, you submit applications, and and then it all culminates with the final individual hearings where you put on witnesses in front of a judge and you try to prove up your case. Do you participate in many hearings? We have tons of them. Every client goes through goes through that series of, of hearings. The initial ones are called master calendars. Those are the ones where you go through and identify relief. And that's where a lot of the battle occurs because that's where the trial attorneys who are your, your opposition, they're the attorneys for the Department of Homeland Security. That's where they try to set up their roadblocks. How do you prepare for one of these master calendar hearings? We conduct a lot of legal research. And then when we head into a master, if we have a legal argument, we present it. And if the judge wants to know more, the judge might order that you write a brief on the matter. And then we have a pretrial hearings to determine if legal arguments correct. Are you ever thrown off by the judge's question? That That's kind of a loaded question because it happens in all sorts of <laughs> in all sorts of ways. You can find yourself in a hearing not knowing at all what what it is that you're doing. How do the judges react to that? There are there are times where judges will get impatient with you, um, but I think it's just kind of a rite of passage. Eventually, once you do enough of them, you start knowing when you can interject, when you can object. Yeah, that's just one of those things that, unfortunately, you're just going to have to fall on your face, and uh, and it's going to happen to everybody. You mentioned early on in our talk that the firm has a fleet of assistants. Are those investigators, paralegals? What type of other workers are there? It's mainly legal assistants and legal secretaries. With immigration law, there's there's a lot of paper pushing. There's a lot of forms that you have to fill out because it's a, I mean, it is federal technically, but immigration is its own, I don't even know what to call it, its own institution. There's a lot of deadlines and there's a lot of evidence gathering involved. And it's impossible for one, uh, one man and an assistant to really do it on their own. If I were to ever consider going solo, I would need several assistants. And maybe if, it, if business was good enough, hire another attorney because it's just the nature of immigration law. It sounds like part of what you've been learning is how to organize and work with a team of other non-lawyers. True, true. It was the same with workers' comp. She had she had some excellent assistants, and I've been blessed to work with really good assistants. And they're they're extremely knowledgeable, and and you really you learn how to coexist harmoniously um, as long as everyone's doing what they need to do. Which may be one of the most important lessons in the workplace. <laughs>
Absolutely. And that's a, another reality of immigration in particular is that when you have a fleet of assistance, you have you get some bad apples in the bunch. And then you have to learn how to deal with those apples. With so many variables at work, if someone's not pulling their weight, there could be really disastrous consequences. Absolutely. Getting back to that life impact on the clients. Right. What about negatives in the job? Well, I stepped into a full caseload. A lot of times it feels like bombs are dropping out of the sky from from nowhere um, as far as cases that you've never heard of. So you really have to scramble to get a read as to where the case is at, what's been done, if the person who was handling it before you was competent and whether they explored every form of relief possible. There is huge liability with immigration law. It's something that I really didn't compute before, but now I'm starting to see that, I mean, you have people's lives on the lines, their families are being ripped apart with deportation. And it's, it's pretty, it's a, it's like a pressure cooker. And so let's say you take on a case that someone else is working on and you rely on their notes, on their research, and it turns out that it ends up blowing up in your face, you're ultimately responsible for that. And from what I've heard, there's a fleet of immigration attorneys just chomping at the bit to come after you. Now, a lot of lawyers face stress of different types. Do you have advice as to good ways to handle those stresses? Not really. I'm pretty, <laughs> I'm pretty stoic. I don't let it really get to me. It's it's hard it's hard to do that all the time because sometimes you come home and you're just your brain is swimming with what could I have done is there something else I could do but there's only there there are only a certain number of hours in the day so what you have to do is just kind of sleep it off and and tackle it the next day and try not to let the worry get to you. What would you say is the biggest myth about immigration law? One thing was I always heard that immigration law is statutory. And somehow that implied that it might be easy. I never thought that because it traverses other areas of law because criminal law is married at the hip to immigration law. The majority of my clients are caught some charge, a DWI or a possession of marijuana or an assault. And so what we have to do is we have to take those criminal judgments and analyze them and apply them to the INA the Immigration Nationality Act. Do you have a chance to work with uh, criminal defense lawyers to advise on the best deal for a client? We steer clear from that. There there was a Supreme Court case, um, Padilla. So right now, criminal defense attorneys are a little weary because they can be held liable for not advising their immigrant clients properly. If you have a misdemeanor in state court, it can translate into an aggravated felony in immigration court, which renders you no relief forever. And so, and it, I mean, it literally comes down to, to the sentencing, comes down to ranges of punishment, and it comes down to whether you got 179 days as opposed to 180. It's literally, it comes down to days, which could ultimately get you kicked out of the country forever. So if you're not inclined to advise due to liability concern, what do clients do? There's a service out now, some immigration attorneys are doing it, but it's a Padilla consult, and it's an analysis of their criminal case and the, the immigration ramifications of a plea deal. 
Manuel, your practice really is about client stories. Can you share with us a common situation to think about that shows just how complex your job is? This lady came into my office and her legal permanent resident husband had petitioned for her and his stepchild. The stepchild had been caught burglarizing a vehicle. And in the interim, her and her husband are breaking up. So what to do? What was presented to me was essentially a family law issue with divorce. We had a criminal issue with the child. We had a family immigration issue with the petitions that were in place. And we also had the kid in deportation because of his crime. So that shows how your practice really brings all these areas together along with high stakes emotions for the client. Absolutely, because nobody's happy in that situation. I'm the Law is a Law Hub production. Don't forget to subscribe and rate this show in your favorite podcast app. Thank you to our presenting sponsor, Blueprint LSAT Test Prep. Thank you also to our other sponsors, LSAT Lab, Seton Hall University School of Law, Vermont Law and Graduate School, and Baylor Law.